As we look at this text, just in, in way of review, the last couple of weeks we've been looking at different aspects of discipleship. And last week we looked at the first point in the ABCs of discipleship is a disciple does not fear the world. A disciple does not fear the world. And we looked at reasons why. First of all, we looked at, in verse 26, it says that he will be vindicated. Things will be sorted out in the end. We don't have to worry about that. And then secondly, we realize that a disciple fears God more than man. A disciple of Christ fears God more than man. And we saw that in verses 27 to 28. He said, don't worry about those that can just kill the body. Worry about fearful of of the one who can kill both the body and the soul in hell. And then we also talked about a disciple knows that he is valued by God. He knows that he is valued by God. Today I want to look at verses 32 through the end of the chapter. And the, the first point there in your outline is a disciple confesses Christ before others. A disciple confesses Christ before others. And in verse 32, we see here those who are confessing Christ. It says, therefore, whoever confesses me before men, I will confess before my Father who is in heaven. We want to look at different aspects of this this morning. The first one is the reason for their confession. Notice that word, therefore, is there. Once again, he uses that several times here. And it's going back to the previous text in the verses. And what he's about to say, therefore, whatever comes after therefore, is based on what he already said. And so we've been talking about the last couple of weeks, the promise and the power and the protection of God as his disciples. We covered that in verses 26 through 31. And so he says, based on that, based on the fact that you know that you have a promise from God of eternal life, that you have the power of God through the Holy Spirit residing within you, and you also have the protection of God over your life, that he knows every little detail. How many hairs or how many hairs you don't have, whatever the case may be, he knows it. That person who understands that should be willing to confess Jesus Christ before men without any fear. That kind of confession is a natural response of someone who is a true disciple of Jesus Christ. Correct doctrine always, normally, naturally, produces proper action. When you know the right thing, scripturally, and theologically, and doctrinally, then it leads you to the proper action that would honor God in your life. Paul said in Romans 1.16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. Why did he say that? He says, because for it's the power of God onto salvation. Do you understand that when people get saved, it's the power of God at work in their life. It's not the power of a pastor. It's not the power of a preacher. It's not the power of some radio show or some other church or whatever. It has nothing to do with that. It has to do with the power of God working in someone's heart. And it's an amazing thing. And when that happens, it's a natural thing to make that confession before men without fear. That you're a follower of Christ. What's that word mean? The meaning of confession. What's that word? Confession, the the Greek word homologeo means basically to affirm, to acknowledge, to agree, to say the same thing as somebody else is saying. You're confessing it. In verse 32, 
It's making a statement of identification. It's making a statement of faith, of confidence, of trust, of belief in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what the confession deals with. The confession is displayed by what one says. So many times I hear Christians say, well, you know, I'm just not going to say anything. I'll just let my life shine before men. Well, that's okay. Your life should shine before men. But sometimes God wants you to put something behind your life that comes out of your lips. Do you understand what I'm saying? He wants you to speak. He wants you to stand up for Christ in the public space, in the, in the sphere of influence that you are in, that nobody else is in. He's put you strategically there for the purpose of sharing the gospel of Christ. And so, confession is not just by the life, but it's also by the lips, what comes out of the mouth. And it's important that those two go together. You don't want to have somebody who's not living for Christ and going around saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, as they're beating their wife and getting drunk every night. Okay, well, that's not going to line up. People are going to look at that and go, yeah, all Christians are hypocrites. The same rate, you don't want somebody that's living a godly life never to speak anything about Jesus Christ. That's almost just as bad. What's the motivation? The motivation of their confession simply is because God is the ultimate judge of earth. In other words, there's no excuse for shrinking away or shrinking back from our duty to confess Christ when we're persecuted or even in times of peace. The inclination is all true Christians will confess Christ regardless of the consequences. And you know what, beloved? There's going to come a day, yes, even in America, even this United States of America, where someone somewhere along the line is going to say, you know what, we forbid you to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. That day is coming. And if we can't do it now, when we have freedom galore, how are we going to do it then? When our head's on the chopping block. Who's the audience? Who are we to confess this to? Look at verse 32. It says, Whoever confesses me, Jesus says, before who? Before men. Literally means in front of men. How many people like to get in front of people and talk? Very few. Some do. I think they're kind of sick, wacko. I don't know. You know, I don't like it at all. I tremble every time I have to do it every week doesn't come naturally to me. That's what this means. It means to go in front of men and confess Christ. Confession of Christ is to be public. Not in some secret little hiding room. It's great to confess Christ in your prayer closet, but it's also great and we're, we're ordered to, to confess Christ in the public place. I even go as far as to say a person who's unwilling to publicly confess Christ, most likely there's something haywire there in their faith. They're probably not a Christian. If you're not willing to confess Christ, he says he's not going to confess you before his father. Romans 10.10 affirms that. It says, with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. You're not saved just because you confess Christ, but confession of Christ is just a an outflow of a Christian's life. You can't help it. And the source, 
Where does this confession come from? Do we just wake up one day and say, oh, you know what, I think I'm going to confess Christ as Lord and Savior of my life. No, the Bible says that confession is not a work of man, but it's a work of God. If it was a work of man, then you would be saved by works. As I just read, Romans 10.10 affirms that the mouth con- with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. And some grab a hold of that and say, well, what you're teaching is then, you know, open confession of Christ as evidence of true salvation is works righteousness. You're, you're saying you have to do this to be saved. No, I'm saying you have to do this because you are saved. <laughs> because the source is from God. Because the Bible over and over again concludes that we are saved by what? By faith, by grace. We're not saved by works. So just confessing Christ isn't going to save somebody. It's only when that confession comes out of God transforming a life. Confession is a work of God. And it's a necessity. 1 John 4.15 says, Whosoever shall confess that Jesus is the Son of God, God dwells in him and he in God. A person who once walked down the aisle after an evangelistic service and says he believes, but he doesn't confess Christ publicly, there's a problem. Red flag. There's something going on. There's not a genuine disciple being made there. 2 Timothy 4.15, Paul said about Demas, he says, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and is departed. See, Demas is being used as an example of what a disciple is not. <laughs> a disciple is not somebody who, when the, the times get tough, they, they you know take off. When the heat is on, they leave. And so we're called over and over again in Scripture to examine our hearts, to constantly examine our hearts in light of God's Word, to make sure that everything's the way it should be before God. I mean, we may find ourselves ashamed to confess Christ sometimes before our families or among our friends. And if that's our attitude, what's it going to be like when we're suffering persecution? (laughs) We need to be willing to confess Christ in all circumstances. Now, that doesn't mean just because we confess Christ that we're never going to fail. I mean, as Christians, as believers... There's always going to be lapses. There's going to be hills and there's going to be valleys in our Christian life. And the Lord promises to to forgive, as Danny read this morning, those who truly know Him, who are genuinely Him, are, are genuinely His. Our sins are forgiven in Christ. Peter was a genuine disciple, but he denied the Lord. But his heart was broken. God convicted his heart. I mean, he failed to live up to the standard that God set for him. But you know what? There was forgiveness involved. Even Paul told Timothy, a young pastor, not to be ashamed of Christ. Implying that on occasion he was. See, the key in each situation was that Peter and Timothy both turned away from weakness and failure. And what they do? They turned to confessing Christ. What's the result? Verse 32, Whosoever shall confess me before men, him I will confess also before my Father who is in heaven. What's that referring to? It's referring to the day of judgment. It's referring to a future day. 
Christ will acknowledge those who had confessed him, and they're his. He will affirm his loyalty to us just as we affirmed our loyalty to him. See, that's the result of true discipleship, is Christ-likeness. Christ isn't going to betray himself. I mean, you think about this this time here, the whole time within earshot of what Jesus is teaching is Judas Iscariot. And you wonder what, what if these words pierced his heart or if he just turned a deaf ear to it. I mean, can you imagine the wonder of this confession one day is going to, you're going to be standing before God. And you're going to have Jesus look at you and say, you know what? This one is mine. He is mine. He's welcome here. I mean, it shows that the Lord of the universe has pledged his loyalty to us based on our confession, based on our salvation. And when we're loyal to confess the Lord Jesus in the midst of a situation where there's persecution and other things going on, you know what? He has pledged to speak our name out in the Father's presence. We look down through the ages of history and we see Christians who have been persecuted. I mean, to the point where they've been burned at the stake and and their heads severed from their bodies and other horrible things done to them. And when they're a true disciple of Christ, what do they do? They continue to confess Christ. You look at Stephen in the Bible as he was being stoned. I mean, he followed the example of Jesus. It's so important to understand that the cost of discipleship, it it means on a whole that there's probably significantly fewer real Christians than what it would appear. It's very easy to come and sit in a church and, you know, you got your Bible, you do your little Bible study thing, you do all that stuff. But what happens when the persecution comes? And the persecution will come. What happens at that point? Are you still going to be willing to confess Christ? Are you going to shrink back and go, "Ah, if I say something, I could be killed? Or it could affect my family? Or it could affect this? Or it could affect that? That's what we're talking about. So those who confess Christ, Christ. Let's look at those who deny Christ. It says in verse 33, But whoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father who is in heaven. There's two kinds of rejectors here. There's open rejectors. Many people just openly reject. They despise. They hate Christ. Um, If you don't believe me, talk to uh, Loretta. She went down to SOS Ministries in San Francisco and they went out street preaching. And she said people just call them every name in the book. Horrible names. Open rejectors. I mean, of all places, San Francisco should be tolerant, right? Well, they're not when it comes to the things of Christ. They're tolerant about everything else. But when you begin to speak the truth of Christ in that city, I guarantee you there's going to people come out in mass against you. Even to hold a Christian function there. They have all sorts of, you know, problems with that. So there's many people who just openly reject Christ. 
And a true disciple continues to teach, continues to preach, even in the midst of that rejection. Because it's not you they're rejecting. They're rejecting the truth that you're bringing to them. There's also secret rejectors. <laughs> There's people who, in Matthew 10, 33, Jesus was speaking of people in the, in the sphere of Christianity, those within the kind of boundaries of discipleship. They go along with all the externals of Christianity. But when they're put to the test, what happens? They deny Christ. How do they do this? First of all, they deny him by their silence. They deny Christ by their silence. See, today in the church, we're allowed to believe that, well, we can be a Christian in secret. We can be an undercover Christian. We don't have to let people know. I mean, that would cause too many problems at work. I'm just going to live my life and, you know, just kind of stealthily go my way as a Christian. That's really denying Christ by your own silence. If you're not willing to speak up for your Lord and Savior who went to the cross for you, because maybe you're going to be hurled some insults or something, you need to really examine your heart. But they also deny Christ by their actions. A lot of, quote, Christians live such a worldly lifestyle that you look at their life and you don't see anything different between what's going on in the world and what's going on in, in, in Christ. And so you stop and you go, boy, there's no difference here. They're really denying Christ by their actions. You can deny Christ by being silent or you can deny Christ by your actions. That's what James 4.4 was talking about. I'll read this for you. James 4.4. He says, Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever, therefore, wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. It doesn't seem like there's a lot of wiggle room in that verse. <laughs> if you're in love with the world, you better look at your own heart. Because it's most likely not in love with Christ. And denial of Christ one day will reap the punishment, he says in verse 32. You notice this is something that's future. In verse 32, he says, I will confess. In verse 33, he says, I will deny. It's not something that happens right now. It's something that points to the final judgment. It's the same idea where Matthew chapter 7, verse 22, he's talking. And, and Christ says, you know, on that day. Many will say to Christ, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name? Have we not cast out demons in your name? Have we not in your name done many works, many wonders? And the Lord turns to them and he says, you know what? I never knew you. It's not that these people were saved and they were doing all this great ministry stuff and then they got unsaved, as some people would believe, because Jesus would say... He wouldn't say, I never knew you. He would say, I once knew you, but now who are you? I don't know you anymore. He doesn't say that. He says, I never knew you because you were never saved. He says, depart from me, you worker of iniquity. You know, sometimes people who are clothing themselves in Christianity can do all these great works. And what's it do? It basically puffs up their ego. 
Because really the motivation behind him doing it, that's kind of what it is. And Christ says, if you're not with me on this, if you're not saved by grace, through faith in me, you can do whatever you want. You can feed all the poor people you want. You can help all the orphans. You can solve world hunger. You can help out the AIDS people. You can do everything possible known to mankind as a blessed act to help someone else out. If you don't know me, it's not going to help you in the end. Because we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. So important to understand that. So many times, I mean, you know, I catch myself waking up in the middle of the night, just kind of, in a way, going through the directory. <laughs> just thinking, okay, man, it's, okay. this person's pretty solid. I wonder how, <laughs> you know, this person's, I don't know. Because you know what? It's not about coming to church. I mean, that's great. You come and you hear the teaching and all that. But if you're not saved, you're not saved. And for any Christian, that that just creates a nightmare scenario that someone could come to a church week after week, year after year, hear the truth that's presented to them, and there's no response. I mean, that's maybe what who Jesus had in mind when he was speaking of these things. He had one of his disciples who wasn't with him. And he knew it. Nobody else knew it. Just Judas and Christ. Maybe he was reaching out to him because he wanted him to understand that you need to confess me before men. We have to be genuine in our faith. A disciple doesn't fear the world. The disciple confesses Christ before others. Thirdly, a disciple puts Christ before his family. Wow, this is kind of close close to home here. A disciple puts Christ before his family. Look at what he says in verses 34 to 37. He said, don't think that I came to bring peace on, an earth, on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Gee, that's, that kind of flies in the face of a lot of things that Jesus said. Did you understand that, that Jesus did not bring peace when he came? That's what they were looking for. That's what the Jews were looking for. What do they call him? The prince of what? Peace. Isaiah 9, 6. Psalm 72, verse 3 says, The mountains shall bring peace to the people. So they expected the Messiah to just usher in immediate peace. And it was even contrary to the disciples' expectations. Not just the Jewish people of Jesus' day, but his disciples thought everything's just going to be fine and dandy once the Messiah comes. They anticipated kind of this, you know, just immediate acceptance of everything in the world of what Christ said. 
And he was the Prince of Peace, so we were just going to have, hey, it's going to be happy time now. The Messiah is here. Well, it was kind of weird because Jesus didn't bring peace, did he? He brought division. Because the immediate establishment of the Messianic Kingdom wasn't to be in their time. And the Lord warned His disciples not to be under any illusions about Him kind of establishing a kingdom of peace right now. And it's kind of almost kind of a, a paradox. It's the Prince of Peace came and He brought division and He brought a sword. In the sovereignty of God, it was necessary that the offer of peace with God be given. But it's, it's also necessary that it results in division and strife. We see that taught throughout the Old Testament. We see that taught, he's quoting, out of Micah 7, 6, when he says, the son dishonors the father, the daughter rises up against her mother. That's what Jesus is quoting there. I mean, even you, you look at the Reformation, Martin Luther, when he basically stood up for the gospel of Jesus Christ, he said this, if our gospel were received in peace, it would not be the true gospel. <laughs> he knew from experience how divisive the gospel could be. He was part of the Roman Catholic Church, and he began to teach the truth that he found in God's holy word. And it flew in the face of what the Holy Roman Catholic Church was teaching. And then all the wheels fell out the cart. I mean, one would expect that our Lord would bring peace. I mean, wouldn't you? I mean, think about Christmas time. All the things we sing about Jesus, the little baby, and all this stuff. Even John the Baptist was the herald of Christ, and he was to announce the peace of the Messiah would bring. Luke 1, 76-79. The angels who proclaim Christ's birth announce peace on earth. In John 14, 27, Jesus says, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. I don't know if they still do that in the Catholic Church, but we used to do that and we'd greet each other and we'd say something like that. I forget what, what he, something along those lines that just reminded me. Yeah, peace be with you. That's what it was. And also with you. Okay. John six thirty three. Jesus said, these things I have spoken unto you, that you might have what? Peace. In the world you're going to have tribulation, but be of good cheer, I have overcome the world. In Romans, Paul wrote the peace of God that has been given to us over and over again. See, there's a peace in the heart of one who believes in Christ. But we have to understand, in the world in which we live, the sin-filled world, it brings division. The Old Testament writers couldn't clearly see the time difference between Christ's first and second coming. The first coming brought a sword. His second coming will bring ultimate peace when he comes to rule and reign on the earth for a thousand years. The gospel of peace is a divisive gospel. It's a separating of the sheeps and the goats. The winnowing of the grain. That's what the Bible claims. I mean, if Christ would have never come, the world basically would have gone to hell in unity. <laughs> Doomed for all eternity. 
But the Prince of Peace came and he brought divisive. He brought division and a sword. He didn't bring peace. And you look at where this division the Im- impacts us most. The division of Christ's coming. You know, the most devastating expression of divisiveness Jesus can cause is in home relationships. That's what he points out here. I mean, you know, if you're, if you're divided over a topic with the guys at work, eh, who cares, right? If you're divided with your wife or one of your kids at home, <laughs> you better care. I mean, these are the most meaningful relationships in a person's life. But see, the Bible, Jesus is telling his disciples, you know what? A true disciple is committed to the Lord. And you know what? They're even willing to exist in an environment of divisiveness, even within the home, if that's what it takes. That word there, it says, at variance. It's used only here in the New Testament. It refers to cutting something apart. Division within the home. Cutting something apart. Dismembering something. And Jesus said that the rendering of relationships would extend from the immediate family relationships to those by marriage. He starts off, he says, division, first of all, between a parent and a child. I mean, that's... An odd thing to have a division between a parent and a child. There's a natural love there. I mean, you love your child. You love your parent loves the child. And the child loves the parent, hopefully. And when that relationship is strained, well, that's, that's kind of a, a different kind of straining than having a strained relationship with your neighbor. He also says there's going to be a division between man and family. And we look back at Luke 9 and we, we looked how a, a disciple of Christ pledged to follow Jesus. But he said, well, I first have to go home and say goodbye to my family. Remember that? And Jesus said this in nine, Luke 9.62. He said, no man having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. In other words, pow, it's not about your family anymore. It's about me. Jesus will not accept as his disciple... One who is unwilling to break away from family ties for his sake. I mean, to be honest with you, when I moved from Pennsylvania out to California, I mean, I was in an age where it was kind of like an adventure. I mean, I I didn't know I'd stay out here. I mean, basically all my family, for the most part, is on the East Coast. And there's... There's a division there. I mean, I could probably look for a church in Pennsylvania and move back there and be with my brothers and sisters as they grow old and watch them die. I mean, I could do that. But that's not what God wants me to do. I mean, I could look for a church every three years as Will and Crystal move the grandkids around the country in the Navy. I think I want to move with them again. I mean, my heart would want to do that because I want to be close to the grandkids. But see, God calls me to a different standard. He says, hey, I didn't call you to this. I called you right here, Redwood City, Grace Bible Church. Here's where I called you for right now. This is where you're at. That's it. So you've got to be content with that. 
And you got to say, you know what? Irregardless of where family or friends or loved ones or whatever, it's, it's, it's really irregardless. If, if next week God called me to someplace in Africa. <sighs> that was a prayer, please don't, by the way, not please do. Um, but you never know, right? I mean, you never know. I was talking with someone one time and they said, well, you know, you don't understand because, you know, in the business world, there's not a lot of security in your business. I said, well, you think there's a lot of security in ministry? There's no security in ministry. I mean, you know, I could do something stupid that would disqualify myself from ever ministering in a church again. God could lead me to a different place. God could, I mean, there's no, there's no security here. This is where God has me here. I pray that it's another 20 years, 40 years till I die, but I don't know. But we have to be willing to say, hey, you know what? There's a cost involved here. And I'm okay with it. Because I'd rather do what God calls me to do. And I pray that you would do what God calls you to do, rather than put your own preference above what God calls you to do. And you can put that in the workplace. You can put that, you know, in your family. You can put it anywhere. It's not just for a pastor at a church. We should always be striving to seek Christ's will, God's will above ours. Verse 37 states plainly the high calling of discipleship and the choice that has to be made. You can't be a disciple of Jesus Christ and participant in salvation. He offers if your family means more to you than he does. I mean, that almost sounds cruel in a way when we say it. But Jesus was very clear. He said our love for him, when it's compared to our love for our family, our love for our family should almost seem like hate in comparison to our love for our Lord. He's not saying hate your family. He's saying in comparison. It should almost seem like you hate your family compared to how much you love me as your Lord and Savior. I don't know about you, but I love my family a lot. But i got to love Christ even more. There's a cost involved there. Fourthly, a disciple follows Christ anywhere. <laughs> anywhere. Even Africa or even wherever. Look at verse 38. It shows us the cost, the call of the cross. He says, he who does not take up his cross and follow after me is not worthy of me. I mean, we've, we've heard a lot of kind of devotional teaching on what it means to take up your cross, right? I mean, we've all heard things, you know, and, and we think of different things, you know. We hear people say, yeah, it's my cross to bear, you know, talking about their wayward kid or teenager or whatever, or spouse or whatever it may be, you know, old leaky car or leaky roof, whatever, you know. Yeah, that's my cross to bear in life. And that makes for a good devotion. That's not what Christ was speaking about here. He wasn't talking something that, about something that bugs you a little bit at work. Jesus didn't speak about those things. He also didn't speak in light of his own crucifixion on Calvary. 
See, his disciples didn't yet understand that Jesus was going to be crucified at this point. they, They didn't know that. I mean, even after he told them he would be killed, they failed to accept the reality until it actually happened. And so, there's no mystical or devotional sense to what Jesus is saying here. When Jesus says, take up your cross, his disciples knew immediately what he was talking about. He was talking about dying, physically dying. I mean, those men who, with the exception of Judas Iscariot, were from Galilee. Think of this, when Jesus was about 10 years old, Judas of Galilee and his followers revolted against, revolted against the Romans and they lost. You can read about that in the, the War of the Jews and Josephus, if you're a history buff. And Rome, in order to make an example of those people that rebelled, an example that would never be forgotten, the Romans crucified over 2,000 Jews and they placed them on crosses along the roads in Galilee. And usually these roads were very well-traveled roads. And so everywhere people went, they saw men dying on crosses alongside the roadside. And every Jew that was crucified carried the crossbeam for his own execution on his back as he marched his way to the cross. See, it was a lesson Jesus was teaching them. He was bringing that up as a way for them never to forget. And he wanted them to understand that those who follow him must be willing to die. You must be willing to die a torturous death rather than deny him. That's the context of what we're looking at. I mean, crucifixion is one of the the worst possible excruciating death that's ever been invented. I mean, after you have the nails driven through your hands and your feet, death itself is caused, and many of you know this, by suffocation. You're holding yourself up, and when you get tired and you let yourself down, it, it closes in your lungs and you can't breathe, and you slowly suffocate to death. I mean, sometimes it takes days. That's why in Jesus' case, they wanted to go up and and, uh, stab him, make sure he was dead and do all that. The disciples understood Jesus meant that they were to be committed to the point of death. See, Jesus isn't the Savior of those who aren't committed to him. Do you understand that? He's not the Savior of those who are not committed to him. He requires a commitment. See, the the modern-day gospel is, well, Jesus loves everybody, and it's kind of a universal love, and God is love, and just do good things, and go to church, and do whatever you want. But No. You have to be committed to the point of death. The love of the Lord must override the instinct for self-preservation. We don't like to hear that. I mean, I don't know about you, but I don't want to die anytime soon. Not looking forward to dying. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm looking forward to going to heaven, but I'm not looking forward to dying. And he calls us to a choice in verse 39. Look at what he says. He says, he who finds his life will what? Will lose it. Bad choice, right? 
Nobody wants to lose their life. Finding his life there refers to securing one's physical safety by denying Christ under pressure. See, you can go out in your workplace and you can be your little secret Christian thing if that's what you want to do. And that's going to be, quote, safe. And you think, okay, I'm going to climb the ladder of success and be somebody one day. And then once I arrive, then I'll share my... (laughs) He says, he that finds his life will lose it. And what he's talking about is yielding to pressure and preserving one's own life without standing up for Christ ultimately results in the loss of your own soul because a disciple, a true disciple of Christ would never do that. But the good choice, verse 39 there, it says, He who loses his life for my sake shall what? Shall find it. Now Jesus wasn't saying here, okay, in order to get saved you have to be a martyr. You know, he didn't kind of draw this out of Islam or whatever. That's not what we believe. Rather, if you're a genuine Christian, you will be willing to die for him. When faced with denying the Lord or denying yourself, you will deny yourself, even to the point of death. He who confesses Christ and suffers death is far better than the apostate who escapes death temporarily but receives eternal damnation. It's important to work that out in our mind now. I, sometimes I wonder, boy, what if the day came? What if the day came when, you know what? I mean, there's the chopping block. Put your head down. Are you going to deny Christ? Or are we going to lop your head off? Man. And they do your whole family in front of you as well. I mean, 